The evening meal provides the perfect time to have deep conversations with others. And so it was with Jesus' last meal as he shared intimate details about himself and the future with his closest friends. This is the Voyage Church Podcast, and you're listening to a sermon from the series Evening Conversations with Jesus, a study in the Gospel according to John. So as we begin, I want uh, to start in prayer for his guidance, for his protection, for his teaching. As I, I did allude this morning, um, it's, uh, it's a somber message in many ways, what we're going to hear this morning. But I, my hope and prayer is that as we go through that, we come to a place of reassurance. We come to a place of comfort. We didn't come here this morning to just kind of bask in a bunch of um, lighthearted talk that doesn't ground ourselves in reality. And reality has its dark side. Reality has its pain. And we're going to be brutally honest about that, especially when, as, we go, as we're going through uh, part of John's gospel here together, this happens to be the passage that God has for us today. So we'll trust in him as we enter into it this morning. Heavenly Father, God, we, uh, we thank you that we can trust in you and trust in your word. We thank you that your message always comes back, Lord, to us uh, for our growth, for our good, for our, our strengthening. And Lord, as we come and, and hear you speak to us today, I pray that we would just have our eyes opened, our ears opened, Lord, that we would be challenged and we would, you would lead us to respond well, appropriately in the power of your spirit. I pray that you would protect my words, Lord, that my words would be of uh, the kind of, the ones that you've put in my heart, Lord, that have originated from you because only your wisdom and truth are what builds us up and prepares us for this life. So may you protect my speech. May you protect our hearts and ears. Lord, bring us ahead in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, well, so as our, our title of the sermon here today uh, suggests, we're going to be speaking about persecution. Persecution. And we live, most of us anyway, live in a bubble where we don't really understand what that is. Off the top of it, right? Uh, today, if you've grown up in Montreal and, and uh, have been a Christian or went to church, and you, know, you lived that out, maybe were open about that as a kid, You've got stories maybe of, of losing friends, of being ridiculed, of being teased, people making jokes or, or kind of pushing you aside socially. Maybe this is from other kids. Maybe this was even from some of your teachers. I've heard those stories um, from people who grew up in this city as believers. And it's not to diminish anyone's experience because, you know, when you grow up here and you get ostracized for something like your faith as a kid, that can be very challenging, very difficult, and very painful. And even as an adult, we don't really sometimes grow out of that. You know, some of you guys maybe, you know, face, face ridicule at, at work or in the locker room or, or in, in certain social settings where you are pushed aside or, or, or rejected because of your beliefs. These are painful things. These are hard things. Things that do scar us. But we have to also acknowledge that if I can say it, these are kind of like a small p type of persecution. This isn't really the, the big league struggle of persecution that many people, many Christians face in a, throughout the world. So I want to give a snapshot of what I mean by that. So 
About 350 million Christians live in countries where persecution is considered significant. Just to start that off, 350 million, that's like the population of the U.S. So looking globally, this many people who claim to follow Jesus face severe persecution. What is severe persecution, you might ask? Well, in 2023, about 5,000 Christians were martyred. That means they were killed because they were Christian. They were killed because of their faith. That's 5,000 last year. Last year as well, 15,000 churches or public Christian buildings were either destroyed or forcibly closed throughout the world. So 15,000 churches or gathering community spaces for Christians closed and destroyed. Going back to 2021, about 6,000 people were imprisoned because of their faith for being Christian. And about 4,000 people in 2021 were kidnapped on account of being followers of Jesus. So when we wrap up these statistics, we find that actually this makes Christianity the most persecuted faith globally speaking. That's the picture of persecution. This is what I talk about when I say like big P persecution. And if we're honest here in Montreal, we don't worry about any of these things at all. But here in Cote d'Anage, one, maybe call it a grace, is that many people come from around the world and move here. And if we listen to their stories, we get a window into this reality. There are people who have come to Voyage Church as believers and have said to us, you can't put my picture on social media. You cannot put my name anywhere because I have family back home and the government watches social media. And if they find out about me, they're gonna go after my family. I've had people come and tell me that. It's real. We live in a bubble that we don't experience that kind of fear, that kind of pain, that kind of cost for following Jesus. But if anyone's been reading scripture, this shouldn't be surprising. This shouldn't be surprising. And we're gonna see that right now as we jump back into Jesus' last night with his disciples. So let's turn to John chapter 15 again in verse 18. So John continues with this discussion where Jesus has been comforting his disciples now that he is uh, 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 mentioned to them that he will be leaving, that he is gonna go and be killed. They don't really know it's death, but they know he's gonna be gone. And so in comforting them, he's been giving this conversation the last few weeks we've been looking at. And Jesus continues, if the world hates you, understand that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. However, because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of it, the world hates you. Remember the word I spoke to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But they will do all these things to you on account of my name, because they don't know the one who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not be guilty of sin. Now they have no excuse for their sin. The one who hates me also hates my father. If I had not done the works among them that no one else has done, they would not have sin. 
Now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But this happened so that the statement written in their law might be fulfilled. They hated me for no reason. When the counselor comes, the one I will send to you from the father, the spirit of truth who proceeds from the father, he will testify about me. You also will testify because you have been with me from the beginning. Now I've told you these things to keep you from stumbling. They will ban you from the synagogues. In fact, a time is coming when anyone who kills you will think he is offering service to God. They will do these things because they haven't known the Father or me. But I've told you these things so that when their time comes, you will remember I told them to you. I didn't tell you these things from the beginning because I was with you. Well, it's a, it's a sober reality check that the disciples have just been delivered. And I think just going to verses 26 and 27 is a great starting point for us this morning. It's, it's the real, the positive note, you know, that, that is kind of ringing out in this entire passage. And that is, is that Jesus is leaving the scene, right? He is going to go die on the cross. He will be resurrected. He will ascend into heaven. He won't be on earth anymore. But as he's already promised, the Holy Spirit will come in his place. And the Holy Spirit will come and empower the disciples, or we might say the church, to continue Jesus' ministry. So they've been given this like wonderful, amazing position, mission, duty, identity, however you wanna frame it, it is incredible. They get to continue in the place of Jesus. But it comes with a cost, comes with a price. If they are going to follow in Jesus' footsteps, they are going to face the same fate as Jesus. If they're gonna speak what Jesus spoke, if they're going to do the work that Jesus did, they're gonna get the response that Jesus got. And that is one of hate and persecution. That's what Jesus is foretelling for them. He's prophesying for them right? If Jesus says, the, word, the world hated me. The world hated me. The world persecutes me. A servant is not greater than the master. The world hated Jesus. And you come speaking on behalf of Jesus. Guess what? You're going to get the hate that Jesus got. In the New Testament, throughout the New Testament, we see that this this reality plays out. All right, a couple of books, if you're maybe you're not familiar with this or kind of want to see this, how this plays out, go to the book of Acts written by Luke. It comes right after John's gospel here in the Bible. It's the history of the early church. And we see the persecution play out throughout those first few decades of the early church. We also can go to the letter known as 1 Peter. Peter is writing to a group of, of, of Christians and they are facing persecution in their, in their communities, in their cities. And he's writing to guide them and comfort them. But also John, the last book of the Bible that he writes is called Revelation. And that is also a, a book that is absolutely filled with images of the church being persecuted, predominantly in John's own day. And that's actually the setting that John is writing in. He's the last person to be writing documents that fill up our Bible. 
in John's day, the community and people that he is writing to are actually facing the things that Jesus has predicted. Right? Jesus says they will throw you out of the synagogue. They will kill you thinking they're doing service to God. We see that. One of the most famous uh, Christian writers in the Bible is Paul. Well, he started out, if we go to the book of Acts, as being a Pharisee, a leader of the Jews and his job, his mission. He, got, he, got, he went and got like a special paper to let him do this and a special authority to go and kill Christians for the Jews. That was his big thing. Jesus intervened and changed his direction. But we see, even if we go to the book of Revelation, John talks about things like a synagogue of Satan. There's this big upheaval in the community. Many of the first Christians are Jews. And because of their faith in Jesus, they are removed from the community. They are kicked out of the synagogue, which means they become social orphans, cultural orphans, where throughout the Mediterranean, Jewish communities lived as... um, little diaspora communities, little immigrant communities, kind of floating adrift in a Gentile world. And these Jewish Christians were removed with kind of no community, no social structure left. Gentile Christians also, we see, faced a similar problem. They didn't fare any better. Going back to other parts of scripture, we see that the Christians who came out of the pagan world no longer we're gonna to sacrifice to the pagan idols that they once did. But in Roman society, you were considered kind of an enemy of the state, a disruptor to civic order and peace and human goodwill. So when you stopped performing the pagan rituals, you kind of got a, an X on your, on your chest as, as someone who was an evil person and they faced death ostracization, like completely kicked out of their careers and their their businesses. There was serious hardship that came along with being Christian in the early church. I think one of the most telling quotes comes from one of the early church fathers. His name is Tertullian. He wrote in 197 AD, and one of his famous quotes, that kind of gives picture to this, He says, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. It's a rough translation from his Latin, but another way of phrasing it, he says something like, the more you mow us down, the more we are a seedbed for growth. That image of being mowed down is how he describes what it's like to be a Christian in around, well, the turn of that century comes with a cost. And in much of the world today, it hasn't changed. That's what's real. So I think it's important that we ask, why? Why the persecution? Why the hate? Why the rejection? Because... There's a lot of things about Jesus' message, his ministry that people really like. There's a lot of good that comes from Jesus. Why the hate? If we really zero in on what Jesus is saying, though, it comes down, I think, to worship. It comes down to a difference in worship. 
Jesus says, the world hates me. What is Jesus when we boil it down? Jesus is God the Son. He is God in human flesh. We could just as easily say, the world hates God. The world hates God. Forgive me, maybe I um, should have should have brought this up at the beginning. Maybe you're not used to hearing the term the world the way I'm using it. Because in the Bible, the world signifies something specific. Well, something kind of general, but also specific. It signifies that sense of, of, of order and structure in the world, in the human world that is against God. It is like a structure of, of sin and brokenness, a structure of rebellion that exists in human society throughout the world that is opposed to God. That's what the world is. So it's, it's kind of almost natural that the world would hate God. You see, God as creator is deserving of all worship. But the world hates God, wants to worship anything but God. That's what it comes down to. God's existence is a constant testimony to the world that it should follow him, it should obey him, it should worship him, it should honor him as creator. But that's the one thing the world doesn't want to do. And what happens, right? If there's something you really don't want to do and someone comes up and kind of sticks their finger in your face maybe and says, oh, you got to do this. Often maybe arises a sense of anger out of you and maybe you want to, you know, put that person in their place. That's how the world responds to that testimony that we must worship and honor our creator and love him. It brings out rage. It brings out violence. The anger having the right thing point out in your face when it's the one thing you don't want to accept. That's the source of the world's persecution against those who stand in Jesus' place, who stand for Jesus. So maybe this can be a transition period, but I want to ask you, have you been feeling comforted yet this morning? Isn't it something, isn't it something that this is part of Jesus' message to comfort the 11 disciples who are eating dinner with him? We have seen, if you go back in the story, in this conversation over one meal, how many times it has been mentioned that the disciples are troubled in their spirit. They are freaking out. They do not know what is going to happen ahead of time in the future, near future. They've been expecting things to get better and better and better. They're expecting glory, victory. They've dedicated their, the past few years of their lives to this hope and this dream, and it's crumbling right before their eyes. And Jesus has been comforting them. And then all of a sudden, oh, you're going to get killed. Doesn't seem like it's comforting. Perhaps maybe it's odd. Maybe it's us and the bubble that we live in. 
right? Because we live in a, in a, in a society, in a culture where persecution is generally considered a bad thing. We have a bias against persecuting people who are different. Can we be thankful for that for a moment? Thankful, a sigh of relief. Where I live and where I grew up, you know, hating people who are different is something that we don't do. It's bad. Jesus' teachings such as, you know, love your neighbor as yourself was groundbreaking in that, in that society. Not only that, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. These ideas were foreign and weird to the first people who heard them. But over time, as we go through history, we see that this becomes the norm. To nowadays, it just seems like natural. Freedom, human rights, those are fruit of God's work in our society today. We can be thankful. They've come out of a worship of our creator an embrace out of, of, of the purpose that he gave us. But at the same time, I think the tides are turning. If this is the fruit of worshiping God, our creator, well, that's just this society that we live in now is doing that less and less. These are really whispers of a past that was locked to scripture, locked to the gospel and is being lost. And that's why the ideas of persecuting and hating people who are different is becoming more and more acceptable. Where violence against people who you don't agree with is more and more acceptable. And that's why I think for many people, especially if we go back through generations, the idea of being Christian is becoming less and less acceptable. So while we live comfortably in a bubble today, we might not be so comfortable in 20 years. Or any of you parents have kids, they might inherit a world vastly different where we can lament for brothers and sisters throughout the world facing real severe persecution. We might also have to prepare the generations after us to inherit such a reality. It's possible. It's possible. So while we might be fearful and discomforted by this message, we need to stop for a minute and think maybe we shouldn't be. Maybe we shouldn't be because Jesus gave this message as one of comfort to his disciples. So when we hear this message and maybe we have... I don't know what your, your social circle is. I don't know what your circumstances are. Maybe you face persecution like this. Maybe you face a different kind of persecution and it's really difficult for you to handle. Or maybe this is more of a, a concept in your mind that you need to hold on to. Either way, we need to come to this and think, how am I supposed to find comfort here? How am I supposed to see this the way that the disciples eventually would come to see it and the way that Jesus intended it? I want to go back to that, that guy I mentioned earlier, the Apostle Paul. He writes in a letter to the, a church in a city called Philippi. I'm going to read the passage, and I'm going to give you a little bit of information to flesh it out. He's writing, and he says to them, But everything that was a gain to me I have considered to be a loss because of Christ. More than that, I also consider everything 
to be a loss in the view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ, my Lord. Because of him, I have suffered the loss of all things and I consider them as dung so that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own from the law, but one that is through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God based on faith. My goal is to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. So Paul says, everything that was a gain to me is a loss compared to knowing Jesus. A couple of things we need to know about Paul. He's the most well-connected dude in all of scripture. Seriously, this guy was um, considered like the cream of the crop in the Jewish society. He's what's called a Pharisee. He's an astute student of the law of God. And he lived the lifestyle rigorously. And he really amps up his pedigree in society. Right early on in the story, he actually goes to the high priest, gets a special little document that allows him to go and persecute and kill Christians. He is like the top echelon of Jewish society at this time. He can be accepted anywhere in the Roman Empire, in any synagogue, because of his Jewish standing as a top-notch Pharisee. Knows the law better than everybody else. At the same time, really wild uh, coincidence, but you know, it's God's blessing on this, that Paul's father had obtained Roman citizenship. So Paul inherits Roman citizenship, which means Paul can go anywhere in the Roman Empire and get away with a lot of things that no one else can. Like soldiers are afraid of Paul because he can get them in trouble. Because when you have Roman citizenship, there's a lot of things that people can't do to you. It is crazy. This is a Jew with Roman citizenship. This is a minority of minority. It means when we go to the Bible, Paul is like snapping fingers. He gets arrested. He says, I'm a Roman citizen. The jailer begs for forgiveness. There's a riot the, the, the leaders of a city find out that Paul is the, is the guy that everyone's after. They're terrified of getting in trouble because he's a Roman citizen. He is the most well-connected guy. He has, if anything is gained, this guy has it. But it's all a loss. All a loss. All his connections. All that that brings him in terms of security in the world that he lives in is a loss compared to knowing Christ. And how does he picture knowing Christ? How does he imagine knowing Jesus? He says, sharing in the fellowship of his sufferings. Sharing in the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death. That is the image that Paul has. That is the joy that Paul has. That is the gain that Paul perceives. Why? That's weird for us. I'm going to come along for another passage for a minute. Because... It's not just Paul doing his own thing, thinking, hey, this is really cool. Jesus himself says something similar. In Matthew's gospel, Jesus has a teaching that also provides a similar level of comfort. In chapter five, verse 11, he says, you are blessed 
when they insult you, when they persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me. When this happens, what should you do? Jesus says, be glad and rejoice. Your reward is great in heaven. This is how they persecuted the prophets before you. Are you slandered? Are you persecuted? Jesus says what? Be glad, rejoice. Your reward is great in heaven. Paul says, the greatest thing that can happen to me is that I share in the sufferings of Jesus and die like him. You know, it goes back to the beginning. Jesus says, Jesus says, that if they hated me, they hate you because you are standing in my place. You are continuing my ministry. Part of the truth of the cross is that Jesus gives up his life for us. Right? When it comes to earning favor with God, being loved by God, finding salvation, forgiveness for the sin and brokenness that we have harvested throughout life, sown and planted and harvested. We didn't do a thing. It's all because Jesus died for us. Jesus stepped in our place. And it's through our faith in him that we become united with him, have our sin and brokenness forgiven and are then loved perfectly by God the Father. There is a union that takes place, a flipping that really takes place. Jesus gives up his life for us. Jesus dies in our place for our sin and brokenness. We are then given a new life, a new lease on life, a new beginning because we have now been completely forgiven and washed clean by God. And then the Bible comes, comes to us and says, well, what are you gonna do with your life now? this new beginning? And to answer the question, right here, continue Jesus' ministry, continue Jesus' life. And how do we know that? We're getting the same response that Jesus got. Do you recognize that if you've been forgiven by God, Jesus was persecuted for you? Jesus was persecuted for you. He was slandered. He was maligned. He was falsely accused time and time again. He was beaten. He was tortured. He was killed innocently. He didn't fight against this. He didn't pick up a sword and defend himself. He didn't run from it. He faced it and took it. The Bible says, like a lamb before the shears. He took it with grace all the way to the end. Jesus was persecuted for you. Willingly, lovingly, Jesus was persecuted for me because he loves us. And now we stand in his place and we find persecution for him. But what that means is that we are walking in his footsteps and we do not walk it alone. 
The spirit of Christ is with us as we do it. So when we see the sharing of sufferings of Christ that Paul speaks about, sharing is more than just repeating. It's being together. It's intimacy with Christ. It's being loved by him and loving him in return and feeling his presence and knowing that what we believe is real. It is Jesus living out in our footsteps and in our skin as we take the blows that he would take. It's the closeness and harmony with our God. That is why it is such a joy for Paul. That is why it becomes such a joy for his followers and a comfort for them. Because as they begin to face the very same treatment that Jesus faced, they know he is with them and they are afraid because he is leaving. But they will know that they are truly in him, a part of him, loved by God, cherished, precious, and protected despite of what they're experiencing. It will confirm the truth that even Jesus says here, your reward is great in heaven. It means you're gonna get there, Jesus saying. As you are persecuted here, know that your reward is great because you shall go and be with the one you belong to. It's the proof, the evidence right before our very eyes. Be glad, rejoice, because when you are persecuted for your savior, you know your savior. When you are persecuted for your savior, you are loved by your savior. And you can experience the intimacy and closeness with him like never before. In a sense, that's when sometimes it becomes so much more real, you can taste it. And that is a source of comfort. And any of you have been through really difficult times. Maybe it's not persecution. Maybe it is. Maybe it's some other kind of trial, some other kind of hardship, some other aspect of life that brings you to your knees. And I've been there and it's weird because those are the times when God just seems especially big. When, he, when his love just seems so much more satisfying. When it's kind of like, yeah, my world can fall apart right now and that's gonna be okay because I know my God who loves me and that's better than anything this world's got and it's stronger than anything this world can throw against me. That kind of intimacy, that kind of strength, that's the place where we find rest, where we find comfort to make it through the reality that we exist in. But at the same time, it doesn't mean that we are to be silent for others. We are called to speak out against evil. We do that through our own example first and foremost, but we also do it through our words and we do it through our prayers. God hears the persecution of his people. God hears the injustice and the pain. And he promises when he comes again to deal with it once and for all. And so this week as a church, I want us to do that, to join with God against the persecution that we face as the church worldwide. 
So we are gonna join in prayer together this week, praying for God's answer to those who are in need, those who are suffering when he comes in the end, but also here and now to see that change happen before us. So starting Monday, we're gonna send out a prompt of a prayer guide, a prayer prompt, so that throughout the week, we as a church can be in prayer for, the pers- for our persecuted brothers and sisters worldwide. And I hope that that would also help us mentally understand what's going on in the world, that we could break free of our bubble and be more, I think, in line with what scripture tells us about reality. Close with me, please, with a word of prayer. Father God, um, on one hand, we can thank you and give you praise that we have it so easy, that we come from a society that has been time and again washed and accepted of, accepting of the gospel so that worshiping you uh, is not considered an evil or a bad thing. That violence and persecution are considered bad things. It is a grace, it is a joy, and we get to experience life that we don't see people in the Bible getting to experience. And people throughout the globe don't get to experience. We, we wanna thank you for that. It is undeserved. At the same time, we recognize that it often lulls us into a place of complacency, the comfort the easiness. And I, that, that blinds us in many ways, Father. and makes us maybe often weak in the face of hardship, turning to things, other things that bring us, that promise to bring us comfort, but don't. So God, I pray that we would have this week ahead of us to consider um, what it means to face persecution for following you, what it means to face the world's hatred of you and to be able to respond in the way that you would respond, the way Jesus, the way you responded and the way that your first followers imitated you so closely, the way they responded with the grace, with the humility, with looking past this earthly reality into the heavenly reality and the joy the joy of knowing you so intimately is to live out your life step by step in the pain and the persecution that you willingly took on our behalf. And ultimately, may this lead us to love you more, to understand that you as God humbled yourself so much to be persecuted by your creatures. The lowliness of it all you took on because of how much you love us and how much you wanted us to be here to worship you and know you. We thank you. May you lead us and guide us in Christ's name. Amen. This podcast is brought to you by Voyage Church, Montreal. Visit our website for more details. And if this episode was a blessing to you, please share it with your friends and family. May God bless you in your walk with him as you go out and make disciples. Until next time, you are sent. Thank you.